Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Before we get started, I should mention the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a special roundtable episode on lateralization in reverse total shoulder arthroplasty, which remains a somewhat controversial topic. We've invited three experts to share their opinions. First, we have Dr. Robert Tajan, who's my partner here at the University of Utah. Bob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter. Happy to be here. Next, we have Dr. John Lever from Holy Cross in Fort Lauderdale in Florida. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for the invite. And finally, we have Dr. Matt Salzman from Northwestern in Chicago. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. Okay, so the first question I have is, for each of you, are you currently using a lateralized or a medialized prosthesis? So, Bob, what, what prosthesis are you using now, and what, what's your primary argument for it? Um, so, I guess the first thing is, uh, if we're talking about the humerus of the glenoid, because that is obviously, uh, we can lateralize on both of those. So, if I was to break it down to um, uh, both of those, for, on the humeral side, I'm using a medialized um, uh, uh, implant. So, uh, uh, the uh, right medical or now striker implant, um, which is a uh, inlay implant on the humeral side. And then on the glenoid side, I vary between some lateralization or no lateralization. And so, depending on patient characteristics, and there's options for uh, three, six millimeters uh, uh, of lateralization, uh, or even actually even larger, eight millimeters on the glenoid side, or no lateralization. So, those are my implants right now. What about you, John? So I predominantly use a uh, reverse that historically has been known as the lateralized uh, reverse shoulder arthroplasty, mostly because it does have options that allows you to go the most lateralization on the glenosphere, I think, than any option that's available. Um, so that's that's predominantly. There are there's every system has modularity, so you can kind of titrate what you need. And, and I do think that um, you know the more we learn about this, the the more we recognize that this is really a patient specific choice. And, uh, and I think it'll be a great discussion on, on how this has evolved. I think we're going to hear the benefits of all, all the different um, implants that you've just described between the three of us. And then Matt, what are you using right now? Are you using a lateralized or a non-lateralized prosthesis? Uh, the prosthesis that I use right now is, is the Medacta. So it has four millimeters of lateralization on the glenoid side. Um, but now there is a lateralized glenosphere that can add five more, so you can get up to nine millimeters of lateralization. It has a semi-inlay design on the humerus. Um, I have used uh, various implants, though, both the ones uh, that Bob and John currently use, so I have some experience with all three of those. Now, John, you said something that just right there that I think is super interesting. You mentioned that th this may be a patient-specific thing. So tell me, where are the cases where you change your typical strategy? So I think the, it's patient specific. So I'm I'm really constantly changing my plan. Um, the advantage, or the I say the the introduction of virtual planning has really dramatically changed my approach to uh, reverse shoulder arthroplasty. I think my primary goal um, is always the focus when I first start. So if I have good fixation, then I can jump to my primary goal, which is 
maximize my impingement free arc of motion. But if I have to compromise my fixation because I have bad bone or bad quality bone uh, or not enough bone, then I might change my strategy and maximize fixation and then take what I can get in terms of maximizing impingement free arcs of motion. Um, while the, the vast majority of what I do tends to be a consistent pattern of, of fitting the size, for example, a, a smaller patient gets smaller size implants and a larger patient gets larger size implants. So I do a lot of that, um, but you can really figure this all out in an individual basis when you start to do virtual planning. I, I absolutely believe that's the future. Bob, tell me on your side, who, who gets medialized, who gets lateralized, or are, you, or are you doing the same thing kind of universally? Uh, no, not doing the same thing universally. That, um, so I instead, I think planning, like John said, makes a difference. And I think obviously if someone has uh, a significant amount of bone erosion, then you know, bringing someone back to their native, uh, where we presume their native glenoid should be, um, is a strategy that we should use on everyone. And I think at some level, that's um, what uh, planning allows us to do. Um, but then the question is, do you even go further? And I think that's where this concept of lateralization and medialization really uh, gets down to, that um, I, I, I don't think many people would disagree that if someone has a highly eroded glenoid, try to bring them back to where they started is, is kind of, that's not the concept that we're talking about. We're, we're talking about uh, bringing the central rotation out further laterally than that. And um, for me, um, I will base it on uh, patient characteristics, age, bone quality, um, expectations with regards to what they want to get out of the, uh, the operation, and um, potential um, uh, risks that are associated with each uh, option, either lateralization or medialization, and try to tailor the operation of what we do based upon the potential complications that the patient might see depending on how lateralized or medialized we go. Now, what about you, Matt? You mentioned that you have some modularity in the implant you're currently using. When are you employing that modularity? Who's the patient that gets more lateralized or less lateralized? Sure. Um, so I think there's always some benefit to lateralization on the glenoid because I think you can prevent scapular notching and perhaps uh, improve any resisting uh, or remaining, excuse me, rotator cuff tension and function. Um, but it really depends on the patient. So I think the 3D planning that both uh, John and Bob mentioned is important for impingement-free arc of motion, um, but there's different soft tissue tensions for females and males. So actually for a female, I'll often use a 36 standard glenosphere, which will just give me four millimeters of lateralization. And for a male, I'm more likely to use a more highly lateralized nine millimeters. And that's because I find that males have more tendency to have instability and I like the soft tissue tension uh, better with the lateralized glenosphere. I think one of the advantages of using a lateralized glenosphere is that you can get tensioning in the so-called east-west plane and you're not just simply distalizing the, the humerus the way the traditional Vermont was described. So let me just, so I just want to make sure I understand it because it sounds like you're using the posterior cuff somehow to make your decision. So if there's more posterior cuff, then you're more likely to lateralize or less likely to lateralize? 
So it really depends on the overall soft tissue tension. So I find the females to be a lot tighter. So in many situations, I'm not going to want to put in a lateralized planisphere. So the 3D planning is great to look for impingement-free arc of motion, but it doesn't really tell you the soft tissue tension. Um, so yes, part of that is the posterior rotator cuff. So I find for, for most females, I don't need to lateralize as much as I do for males because of the tension difference between the two. What's your thoughts on that, John? Do you think... That when you see someone with just a little bit of teres, you should put a more lateralized glenosphere or a less lateralized glenosphere. If you see a patient where most of the cuff's intact, how does that affect your thinking going into the case? Because I certainly can't see that in preoperative planning right now. So I think you bring up two, two, two kind of examples that come to mind. And one is the patient who has sort of classic cuff arthropathy. They're missing their entire cuff, bald head, superior acetabularization of the, of the uh, CA arch, right? That patient often has a very uh, large bursa. They stretched out their deltoid. That's a patient that even when they're smaller, I'm going to use a slightly larger ball because I think there's going to be an instability problem because things are just stretched out. And contrast that scenario to a very small patient like Matt was referring to. And in a small patient, I want to use the smallest glenosphere available, which it, for me is a 32 minus 4, which gives me 6 millimeters of lateralized offset. And then I definitely want to be in using an inlay hemo component. I think a lot of our parts are just too big for these small patients. And so by creating arcs of motion within the smallest glenohumeral space possible, so inlaying the humeral component, so the articulation is almost, the, the, the pivot point is within the humeral head, in the center of rotation point, right, right in the middle of the humeral head. So you can inlay the humerus, still get lateralization, so you get a great impingement for arcs of motion, and then you can deal with the small patient. So the very contrast, when it comes to the teres, I mean, you know, I, the, the only question I, I have in terms of cuff is if you're missing enough cuff, do you ever do a lat transfer? It's a whole nother conversation. And, and we published a while back that we've had pretty good success utilizing a lateralized center of rotation glenosphere and restoring external rotation without the need for a lat transfer. So uh, I, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to the amount of cuff unless I think it's going to make the joint unstable. And then I'll use a larger ball as a method of managing that. What are your thoughts on that, Bob? Are you still doing lat transfers or do you feel like the lateralization makes it so you don't need to do lat transfers anymore? So I, again, don't do as much lateralization as John does. So if I'm, if I gave you an average kind of breakdown of patients that I'll treat, if I have a very low demand elderly female with highly osteoporotic bone, um, I am doing a medialized, medialized implant to be able to place as much or as less tension on that uh, acromion to be able to hopefully prevent having what's a devastating injury, which is an acromial fracture in an 80-year-old lady. Um, so that versus, say, a 50-year-old uh, male with excellent bone that may have had one or two prior operations on his shoulder, oftentimes I'm lateralizing the humerus oftentimes six millimeters using a, a base plate uh, that has a six millimeter lateralization. I'll also use a 42 sphere, which will also push us out a little bit more laterally. Usually that combination plus some level of an inlay implant, that's usually the maximum that I'm actually doing for, for lateralization. There are some options in the system to even lateralize in the glenosphere, uh, uh, another uh, two to three millimeters with uh, the sphere used. So that's kind of my range in terms of what I do and then try to tailor what I'm doing on the glenoid based on instability, risk, 
notching issues with how, how much the consequence of the notching is going to matter for a patient. Uh, an elderly 85-year-old patient, probably the effect of notching long-term on the implant is low, whereas a 55-year-old male with a reverse, probably the notching implications are high. Um, and then um, uh, counter that with the risk of having a scapula fracture. Um, in terms of the lat transfer, I still do them because I don't think the amount that I'm lateralizing is probably going to be enough to be able to account for that. The patients that will typically do it on, for me, are young patients, male, so in the kind of 50s to 60s or 65-year-old males that um, have a gross external rotation lag. So that means that the hand is placed in neutral rotation and you it drops right back to the abdomen. So that's the patient where I'm doing a, a lat teres transfer. Um, not someone that just has a, uh, you know, uh, you place them in 10 or 15 degrees of external rotation and they come back to neutral. I'm talking a hand that actually goes all the way back to the abdomen. Um, then in those patients, I will do a tendon transfer and I'll lateralize them based upon, uh, you know, their age, uh, muscle, uh, their bone, uh, bone deficit, et cetera. Usually they'll get a couple millimeters of lateralization. I still don't think that, I don't know, John, maybe this would be interesting. If you think that just lateralizing on the glenosphere can restore external rotation in those patients who have no ability to maintain any level of external rotation, I've just not found that any changes in implant can actually do that. So I, I think to, to an extent you're, you're right. I think there are, there's, there's a limit of what you're going to get out of the external rotation that you get from just lateralization alone. I think you get range of motion, but not often strength. And I think you know, what I challenged back would be how much strength are you actually getting from a lat transfer? I, I counsel patients that, that um, you're going to get some better functionality. You'll be able to rotate your hand in space, but for you to have any power with that, I don't know that I have an operation that can predictably do that, but maybe, maybe the lat transfers that are being done are gaining strength. I just, I never got that when I did it for, and I do it every now and then that, that patient you're describing where they literally recoil all the way to their abdomen. That's yep. when I, I, I at least have the conversation. Yeah. And so my, my goals for them when they recoil like that is to be able to them to control their arm in neutral rotation. And so that's the goal. It's not to kind of have 30 degrees of external rotation on the side. It's for them to be able to position their arm in neutral rotation in front of them and hold it in space as opposed for them just recoiling back to their abdomen. And I'll be honest, in those correct, those selected patients that I'll do it in, they, I've had good success with them being able to actually maintain that position. Now, the people that I think don't recover or don't do well are elderly patients with that problem. So doing a lat transfer or lat teres in someone that's a you know, 80, 85 year old person with that exact same picture, my personal experience has been, they don't, they can't recruit that. They don't recover that. And so that's why I've stopped doing it. The, the, the counter to that is that that's actually probably the most common patient that you're going to see that very severe defect. And so I think that's why in general, the, the number of times where I'm doing the lat teres uh, transfer is low because it's got to be in a young patient that can potentially recruit and utilize that transfer, and they have to have a severe defect enough, a severe enough defect to actually consider doing the, the procedure.
And Bob, one other thing I just I, I, that I have to add, just from my personal experience in doing lat transfers, uh, and this relates to that statement I had about these cuff arthropathy patients that are a little bit more loose. Um, I, I've had two two patients that I you know did a lat transfer on, thinking that I was trying to restore external rotation. They both dislocated, so I had an instability problem that I believe I created by doing the additional dissection, and maybe I'm creating a different vector um, for for a cam effect or something. But uh, sure. I, I had two cases, two cases that uh, I went ahead and did the lat transfer and they dislocated and then I was kicking myself for doing it. Um, ended up putting a bigger ball in and restoring external rotation, probably less from the lat transfer and more from just the extra lateralization I do. Because when I when I revise these instability patients, I'm using a 44 plus six. It's a huge lateralized sphere. Um, and sure. uh, they, they actually get pretty good external rotation, but I wouldn't use that primarily. But that's, that's just my only other comment uh, for, for the last Yeah, I think, I mean, you make a good point about stability. And, and I think one of the keys of doing a transfer is, for me, is that they have to have a competent subscapularis. So, or at least a repairable subscap. So someone with a completely deficient subscap or someone that really has a poor quality, you know, piece of tissue that is really just scar and not actually flexible muscle, to me, I won't do a transfer um, because A, I think that you're right that they probably are in a situation where they are at higher risk for instability, but B is that by taking away their latissimus and teres, you're also taking away their other internal rotators. And um, at some level, um, uh, you're sacrificing those in the setting of not actually having a subscapularis. So I would agree that um, there's probably a risk of instability depending on kind of the how tight the prosthesis is put in, the amount of lateralization, but also based upon the subscap. The other issue that is brought up is that should you just transfer the lat alone versus uh, transferring the lat and the teres, I've still just transferred both of them because that's what I've done in the past and it works. But there's, you know, obviously debate that should you just transfer the latissimus and then it's like, okay, technique, how do you do that? Um, there are some that actually transfer through the teres major and then others transferring under the teres major. Um, I get a little personally concerned with that with regards to the location of the radial nerve and then uh, doing a transfer in the setting of um, still having an intact teres major. So for me, I've just taken both of them down and transferred both of them. And as long as the subscap has been repairable, I've not necessarily found a problem with internal rotation issues or honestly instability so if i may just say one thing um, i had a similar experience to john i had a patient that i did a combined lat and terry's major transfer also resulted in instability so for that reason i've sort of gotten away uh, from it initially I, I thought the profound external rotation lag was a great indication i did a handful but um, after that instability case i went to just using more of a lateralized glenosphere and I don't think the effect is as profound as transferring the tendon, but I do think, you know, to Bob's point, it may allow you to keep your arm in that neutral position and prevent it from sort of coming towards uh, the abdomen. So I don't think it's as strong, but I think it may be an alternative just to put in a lateralized planisphere. Um, perhaps what you're doing is tensioning the deltoid a bit more and allowing them to use that to control their arm in space so they don't have that uh, extra rotation lag sign. Matt and John, do you, do you guys, in those cases where you were unstable, do you remember if they had repairable subscapularis or not? I mean, it's very rare that I can't repair something. 
Uh, so I don't think that was a, that was an issue. I mean, typically when they have an ER lag, you know, that 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 profound, they often have the like the anterior structures are often okay. They just have more of a posterior cuff there than it than right. both. But yeah, my um, case was I, um, it would. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, John. No, no, no. I just I don't recall exactly, but I don't remember that being an issue. Right. I think for my case, the subscap was intact, as I recall, and it was interesting, Bob, because it was it was late. I mean, it was probably almost two years after surgery, um, and I, I can't quite explain that, but it really surprised me because this was a patient who had done really well. They had a restoration of, of external rotation, or at least they could hold their arm in, in space, and, and it really surprised me when she came in at two years, um, unstable. Of course, I did an infection workup, everything else, it was negative, and when I got in there, um, you know, I needed to go to a much bigger clenosphere, just the way John had implied, just to, to um, stabilize her. I mean, she was so loose, it was really um, sort of uh, astounding. I think that's a good point uh, in, in, a, in a discussion on lateralization, the, the profound ability to create stability. I think if you have combined lateralization and larger spheres, um, those two factors are, are game changers for, for creating stability in an instability pattern. So, it, you know, there's one glenosphere I use that has both in it, but, you know, as you change the modularity to manage these patients in a revision setting, I think almost all of us are probably thinking lateralization of some kind. I agree with that. I do um, a fair number of tumor cases with one of my partners who's a big MSK guy in, in Chicago. Um, and he frequently for, you know, for um, metastatic disease, we've done osteosarcoma, we've done all sorts of cases and he'll, he'll frequently resect the entire uh, proximal humerus just above the deltoid insertion. And I used to think about using a humeral allograft, but I actually now go to 42 lateralized glenosphere and it just makes the procedure uh, much easier. Um, it, it stabilizes it even with that proximal humeral bone that's that's missing. So for me, that's one of the, the biggest advantages of lateralization on the, on the glenoid is the ability to stabilize those cases with proximal humeral bone loss. One of the questions I think I have for everyone about that is, you know, we've talked a little bit now about the soft tissue in terms of the cuff. One of the questions I have is about the soft tissue and the deltoid. I, mean, I think we've all seen that patient who's, you know, maybe had like three prior cuff repairs in the space of a year and a half, and they haven't, you know, they've they're almost been a sling for a long time. The deltoid's really thin; it's at atrophic. Do you do you alter your strategy when you're worried about the status of the deltoid? So, Bob, do you think with a weak deltoid you should use a more distalized, more lateralized? Does that change your mind? Yeah, I mean. Um... I think it's a good, I think it's an interesting uh, issue. And uh, I don't, I mean, personally, I don't really have a, um, um, I, I don't think I have enough, um, I've tuned into it enough to, to say, this is exactly what I'm doing because of this. There's clearly people that come in, especially revision cases where the deltoid is highly dysfunctional. And then there's, uh, patients that have a nice beefy deltoid and do I then change my construct with regards to if I'm going to lateralize or distalize based upon that not really honestly that I, I worry about stability in cases where the deltoid is insufficient or weak or atrophied etc and so most likely intraoperatively in those cases I'm managing it to be able to maximize stability and for me that might include somewhat of a, a little bit more lateralized uh, kind of on, um, lateralization on the on the humerus 
but I'm excuse me on the um, on the glenosphere. But oftentimes um, it's actually probably uh, uh, increasing length distalization using constrained liners, et cetera, because usually these are severe cases with uh, you know modest uh, outcomes in terms of what your expectation of where they should land postoperatively. But um, I, I think. Um, it's a good question. I don't have a great answer except the fact that I'm usually uh, modifying what I do surgically to try to uh, keep a stable shoulder. It's so interesting to me that you say that. I mean, we've there's been so much work in the lab looking at deltoid force and is it higher with more or less lateralization? And I often wonder if we've really taken that to our practice or whether it translates. So it's hard to well, know. Think, what, do, what are your thoughts? Yeah, tell well, me. Guido, what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, so I yeah. think I, I think that that's a different issue. So at some level, we you're right that you know with lateralization on the glenoid, we know that the deltoid has to work harder, um, and um, obviously there's more chromial stress uh, that is seen with that. Similarly, that, those issues with regards to uh, deltoid work is seen with distalization. So anything that either distalizes or lateralizes on the glenoid you're going to increase the workload that the deltoid has to accomplish. But I think that that is a different scenario than, uh, or the considerations are different when you have someone that has a dysfunctional deltoid, really, you know, trying to offload that dysfunctional deltoid is, I, I mean, I, I, again, I worry about more of the worst case scenario, which is the deltoid's not working and you're gonna have a dislocating reverse shoulder replacement. But maybe um, maybe it, my my thought process is wrong about that. I mean, I, th I think you guys, it's a right now it's very theoretical, and a lot of the the, the modeling is really hard to model dynamically. And, and I think that's one of the big things is you're dealing with a if you're dealing with a weak deltoid. And another variation on that example is someone who's had a previous open cuff repair and they've avulsed their middle deltoid, and so you know going into it they're going to have some deltoid deficiency because they just don't have a deltoid there. Um, you know, I don't think I do things differently other than they get counseled differently. I, I let them know that likely they're going to feel weaker. They may not get as great of range of motion. So I try to really focus on the up, the, the on the front end in defining their patient expectations. And, and then we work some deltoid strengthening afterwards and, and do our best, but there's going to be a limit to, to what they achieve. Um, so, I, and, and I just want to make one other comment on the acromion fractures. Obviously, I've, I've spent a whole lot of time trying to, trying to overanalyze this. Um, cause I've seen a good number of them and yes, there are, uh, those that occur because we are tensioning the acromion. Um, and I think those are ones that you can see in all systems where you over lengthen and, and put additional stress. But I actually think that impingement between the graded tuberosity and the acromion is a major cause of acromion fractures. And I think if you start to do virtual planning and you start to look where impingement occurs, if you see impingement between your greater tuberosity and the acromion, I make a change. My goal is to have the poly hit the superior glenoid. And a lot of the, the, of the medialized Grimant's designs, you'll actually see the superior poly hit the superior glenoid before the greater tuberosity ever gets to the acromion. And I wonder if the reason why there's such a low incidence of acromion fractures in the original Grimant designs, you know, Jill, in the European series that had a 1% or something astronomically low in my opinion, because everybody else is getting three or four times that. Um, but maybe they're just not impinging. So 
there are those that are caused when you over lengthen three, four, five centimeters. We know that that there are some, there's good evidence to support that. But if you're not, you're in you you're not over tensioning it. Why are they getting it? And I think that chromium impingement is real. So don't blame it all on the stress. And don't blame it all on the lateralization, Bob. No, I'm not, and I don't I I don't think that that's the case. I think impingement is real. But actually, you make an extremely good point or valid point that if you're not seeing impingement with the way that you're actually doing the shoulder, the, the replacement, then at some level, it's not impingement. And so, uh, meaning that if the prosthesis is placed such that the greater tuberosity is not impacting into the acromion, then the likelihood that then it's either coming, we still see stress fractures. So it's either coming from lateralization or distalization. And so I, I'm, I'm, I totally agree with you. We, you know, it's interesting that we we published um, Peter and I published this my, uh, results of my patients that I did reverse shoulder replacements recently with a couple year outcome and we looked at a couple hundred patients and one of the th factors that kind of played out that was important was distalization. So what we found was that there was a higher rate of complications and potentially uh, reoperations uh, the greater that you distalize in the humerus. And um, I was talking with Grant uh, Garagus about this, and he's like, oh, Bob, this is exactly kind of, I use your data to be able to help kind of support the reason why lateralization on the glenoid is okay, but distalization is actually not okay. And my kind of counter to that argument is you can't really use that in the context of the data that, that in my patients, at least in the series, because almost none of them had any lateralization on the glenoid. So if you're not doing it, you're not probably seeing the problem or the consequences with regards to it. And so the only potential consequence that we were seeing was those of excessive distalization. And I think it's the same thing that you're kind of talking about, that if you're kind of using a more medialized construct on the glenosphere, just like what you said, you might never see impingement of the tuberosity on the acromion. And so the only the only kind of result of why you're going to be seeing a problem with the acromion is uh, with either lateralization or distalization. But I totally agree with you that if you're in using a construct where you can see the, the conflict between the two, then you definitely need to add in um, that as a potential source of why people are having fractures. Hey, Bob, did you see a difference in your inlay and onlay? I'm assuming you maybe had a, um, a few of each in, in your group, in your nope. series that you're discussing. Yeah, so my, my experience has been that I, um, I did, when the Flex came out mm -hmm. for, for Tournier, uh, I, I did it for about 15 cases. And then what I found was in those 15 cases, I had like... Um, one or two dislocations and I had like, or no, I had like uh, one dislocation and I had like two uh, chromial fractures in 15 cases. And I had never seen those numbers at all. And I was like, either I'm doing this wrong or it's the implant or whatever. And I just got scared and I went back to doing what I normally do, which is an inlay humeral component. So I used the flex for probably couple months and then I opted back to kind of a traditional 155 inclination angle on the humerus with a inlay and have been there ever since. 
And now I'll be honest with the new uh, perform stem coming out, uh, which is, is out, I've actually gone back now to um, a uh, steeper inclination angle. So they have a 135 and a 145 option, which is inlay, similar to the prosthesis John's using right now. Um, and because of that, honestly, I'm lateralizing a lot more on the glenoid than I have. And actually, the results have been really good. Shoulders have been stable. Range of motion has been good. Um, at least early on, I haven't done a tremendous number, but I definitely haven't seen the issues with regards to either a chromial fracture or instability that I saw with using uh, the flex uh, when I started to transition over that. So we'll have to see. But I think, again, people are migrating to the middle. You know what I mean? That I'm, I'm using Bob, a little Bob, bit. I'm, so, I'm sure. so proud of you, Bob. I'm so proud of you, Bob. I feel like you've seen the light. <laughs> well, honestly, though, I'm still, you know, if I still have that, like, 85-year-old lady that comes in that has, like, bone that you can see through, I'm, I'm still kind of going back to my old school of, uh, you know, uh, Grammont style implant, because I know that the lady is going to have no pain at six weeks. She's going to be able to raise her arm and she may notch, but she's not going to have an acromial fracture and she'll probably be happy with her 85 year old kind of life. But definitely in the younger patients with very good bone, um, I've actually noticed a, a, a tremendous difference. And the thing that I've actually noticed a difference in is internal rotation that um, the patients that have done that construct of a steeper neck neck shaft angle, a little bit more lateralized on the humerus that have muscle volume, um, meaning their cuff to be able to uh, move the shoulder, that um, their internal rotation at two to three months has been uh, tremendously better compared to a standard kind of more inlay medialized system. So I, I definitely see now in my own clinical population, there's definite advantages, but again, I'm, 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 I, I still think that to throw everything away is also probably not wise in my part, just because I've had such good results with the other uh, style of implant in certain patient populations. So Bob, I've done um, you know, probably a couple hundred of the flex only, and I have to say that I saw more acromion fractures when I was using that implant, and then I've had two different systems that have a semi-inlay design, and even when you use that in conjunction with a lateralized planisphere, I'm seeing less acromion fractures, so it seems like when you're sort of stacking it on top of the humerus and you're just really distalizing it and increasing that acromiohumeral interval, it seems at least in my hands, there's more of a propensity for acromion fractures in that setting. Sure. Uh, and that doesn't, that doesn't surprise me that, you know, you lateralize on the glenoid, you lateralize, or sorry, distalize in the humerus, that it's like, uh, it's a compounding effect. And so I think that there's, uh, you know, I think it's pretty clear that you do a, a lot of both of those at the same time, or a lot of one of them, you might have a higher risk for having a fracture than not. And, um, um, you know, I was even doing it in a medialized, you know, glenosphere with the, with the flex, and I saw this bump. And, you know, the data would somewhat support it. Even the, you know, the Marola paper that sort of suggests mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, increased risk of fracture with the flex. Um, uh, but uh, again, if you, if you look at all of the the acromial fracture scapular spine fracture papers 
and you kind of list them from top down that include the highest rates to the lowest rates, the numbers that come out as being the highest rates, I mean, unfortunately, John, are- It's mine. Right. And, so, and it's not yeah. just yours. But- but it's, <laughs> It's, so is that lateralization, John, or why does that happen? That was like 2005 to 2008 data. I mean, that honest, in all honesty, like that data, that that was a much smaller series. It was what we, it was the paper that where I, I kind of tried to put together a classification system, right? But right. then when I then shifted to an inlay, so back then the original DJO Encore, whatever it was called back then, was an was sort of a semi onlay. I mean. The, the surgical technique, if you dig it out of the archives, says take a tablespoon cut off the humeral head and ream into it. Like, I never do that. I make an anatomic cut and, I'm like, and then I try to inset it within there. So when I did that, you know, we, we then published a series of what we call the monoblock, which was that next generation allowed me to press fit. And uh, the chromium fracture rate went from that astronomically high, like 11 or 12% down to four. And, uh, and, and I'd probably sit around three to four. I, 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 we all get them and we I'm very in tune on it. Believe me, anybody comes in with any pain in the top of their shoulder acutely is getting a CT scan or at least, you know, I'm, I'm working it up. Um, so I'm, I'm trying not to miss any of them and, and be very, very sensitive, but I don't think like yet. Yes. Historically I was doing an, a lateral lateral. I was doing nothing different than what the, the flex did with a lateralized glenosphere and an onlay uh, humerus. And I think that all that data is consistent. And Frankel and Latterman and Denard just published a paper that was reviewed in the, the journal club last night. And uh, they found the same thing. I mean, they're, that, that uh, right medical, uh, I think it had a 12% of chromium fracture rate. Um, so that combination, I think lateral, lateral, lateral and, and lateralization on both sides is probably not a great idea. Yeah, I told And you're right. It's Yeah, your study sits at the top, but... And, and honestly, to tell you the truth, though, that um, that if you look at kind of some of the high other higher rates of fracture, um, it's it's kind of a, um, there's there's some inlay stuff. So you look at like I mean, some of it is from the, the Delta Extend, um, you know, they're the series that um, I think one's from kind of Germany and then uh, Steve Hatrop had his series and their rates were like seven, you know, uh, heights, you know, seven, eight percent in that range, and that's using an inlay implant. And so part of that probably has to do with distalization. Um, and then you're right. Then the, then the kind of onlays of the of um, you know the uh, the flex are kind of in that four to five percent range in that in that area. And then the reverse two stuff from Europe is probably the lowest reported rates, which is what you had mentioned, John, which is kind of that 1% or whatever. So I think to kind of totally say that it's one thing or another, it's pretty hard because there's clearly, you know, inlay stuff on the humerus that is high. And there's obviously inlay stuff on the humerus that's really low. And then there's uh, onlay stuff that is pretty reasonable, you know, high. And there's, um, uh, I don't know of any real onlay stuff that is super low. Do you know what I mean? And um uh, so, uh, for whatever it's worth, I think that um, uh, that it, it's probably the combinations that actually matter. And um, uh, so, it seems like one of the I feel like one of the take home lessons you can take from all of you is that it's probably not correct to mix and match 
between varus and valgus lateralized medialized so you don't want to go you know those things don't all they have to go together in certain combinations and that you want to have a system or a you know a, a collection of implants available to you that will allow you to do whatever you think is right for that specific patient so whatever system you use should have some modularity so that you could be more or less lateralized you know to, to to be able to modulate those things in the or so that you're not forced into some one specific route that's going to increase your complication rate yeah, Peter, that's that's a great point. And there's so many systems on the market that you really have to understand what the system offers. Is it 135, 145, 155? Is it lateralized on the humerus? Is it lateralized on the glenoid? Onlay, inlay, semi-inlay. And, and there are just so many permutations that if you don't fully understand your system, I think you can get into trouble in the OR. And it, it just is, is more and more complex as we have more prostheses that come out, you know, day by day and year by year. That said, Matt, what do you? That, oh, sorry, Peter. I was just going to say that Please, having all of those uh, having all those options, actually, I think at this point now with a better understanding of what they can do, really can create a more patient specific reverse shoulder placement. I think locking yourself into just one thirty five, or locking yourself into just having you know three millimeters or more of, of lateralization or whatever it is, I think you know it really doesn't it. It, it it creates complications in certain sets of patients that you potentially might be able to avoid if you had more options. So if you understand the options that you have, then I think it definitely opens the breadth of being able to treat more patients in a patient-specific fashion as long as you understand what those options will provide you, as opposed to limiting the number and just it, it, it obviously simplifies the decision-making process, but then it also potentially doesn't afford the patient the best um, outcome that could potentially occur. Oh, I, I agree know, I, wholeheartedly. I, I would just say that that you know the the thing is is that um, you know it just makes it uh, trickier to to figure out why are we getting acromion fractures? When are you getting notching? And I think that you know the impetus is on us to to understand the system, but um, it, it may make it a little bit cloudier as to why we have some of these complications, such as acromion fractures. So I'm going to, I'm going to uh, sort of disagree here. And I actually think that the goals of the arthroplasty are first create stability. And I think you could do that really easily. Second, make sure you've got fixation, right? You need to get glenoid fixation because if you don't get glenoid fixation, you go back to the seventies where they failed. Um, so improving fixation, make sure it's stability and then maximizing your impingement free arc of motion, right? So if you could just do those goals, I don't think it makes a, like, I don't think you're, we know enough to quote optimize it. To me, optimization of the reverse is our goal, but it's, it's optimizing motion. It's optimizing impingement free arcs. Cause what happens if you get impingement, you get notching, you get stress fractures, you have camming effects that could cause dislocations. So impingement is bad. You're going to get impingement because you, you have to rotate around a sphere and it's going to hit something somewhere. But what you impinge upon, I think matters. And uh, I think, if you follow those principles, then I think all the systems are going to work. Look, they all work. All reverses work. And the, you know, the, the complication rates are not that much different from system to system. So you have to know your system, know the versatility. But if you can create your goals of what you're trying to achieve, and if those goals are make sure you get good fixation and maximize your motion and get stability, then I think the rest of it falls in place. And so you can get that with a, a consistent system. Sometimes you get too many variables and it gets way too confusing. And you got you don't know which of the five humeral 
humeral sided changes you want to make, and then another seven on the glenoid, and it gets a little bit confusing for people when we don't really have evidence to to, to guide us on any of that. Yeah, I would I would tend to say yes. I think that we have we have some evidence of what matters, of whether you know a one fifty five is going to notch more than a one thirty five. So probably theoretically, you're going to have uh, greater uh, adduction range of motion with a 135 versus a 155. But, but not in every patient. But Bob, what I guess what I'm saying is it's a patient-specific thing. Like a 135 might notch, might never notch in a patient, but it, uh, I should say a, one, a 145, a, a varus neck shaft angle might notch in one patient, but never notch in another. So then, right? then if, I you have, if you have a big glenoid neck and you have a, you know, there's, there are all these clinical scenarios. So you got to optimize the individual patient. So then I, I would say that if, if, if we can't make that assessment in general, then you should just put in a Grammont style implant because it's no, because you don't get, you, you get, impi- you get impingement and notching consistently. But I thought that you said that you can't determine who is going to actually impinge versus not. No, I, this is my, this is my push for making this a, a patient specific thing. So this is where I think actually doing a virtual plan on patients makes a huge impact. Because you can yeah, see, I mean, you can I, see where impingement occurs. Sure, and I totally, I totally agree with that. But also, you have that—that's all we're seeing is conflict. So, I mean, the other piece of what we can't see on a virtual planning is uh, tension and the how much uh, the muscle uh, changes over time when you actually put the shoulder in virtually. So, for instance, if I lateralize the glenosphere on a patient by 15 millimeters. Uh, on a base plate, I would tell you that my range of motion most likely is going to be better from a conflict standpoint than if it was lateralized five millimeters. Now, if I lateralized every single patient a centimeter and a half or two centimeters on their base plate, I bet you that their range of motion would be worse than if I lateralized. Yeah, you couldn't reduce half of them. So you have to, you have to take, obviously you have to take things in consideration. You have to use your experience of what What's, re- what's realistic. I mean, if you have, you know, preoperatively that passive motion is 30 degrees in all planes, you can't over lengthen the arm. You can't go too far lateral because they're going to be so tight. You're going to have to do right. huge releases and barely get them in. So you have to, you know, that's where you have to be a surgeon. You can't just let the computer do the whole thing for you. You have to understand the patient, say, okay, this is a very loose patient, or this is a very stiff patient. I mean, the first thing I do, you know, fellows in the room, what was the range of motion preoperatively? I mean, wait, once the patient's asleep, examine them and know what your starting points are. And that might change your plan. I agree with that. The soft tissues are really paramount and you, you can't get a sense of that at all with the 3D planning. And, and then you adjust your plans. And so, but you, like, I promise you, if intraoperatively you get impingement at 40 degrees of abduction, that patient will do poorly. Sure. Absolutely. But if you can get 70 degrees of abduction and you could have predicted that if you just made a couple changes, you drop the glenosphere down a little bit to the bottom of the glenoid, you might, uh, you know, choose a, a six millimeter lateralization, like you, you, you titrate it to the individual patient. Now, all of a sudden you can, you can maximize your motion. Oh, we just lost Bob. Yeah. I think Bob has to run, yeah. run to another conference call, um, which I'm really bummed about. Cause we, um, we were just getting, we're getting into hot. this argument. Yeah, we're, get, we're getting heated, Yeah, it's right? good. It's good. <laughs> it was good. Yeah. Let me let me ask you this, John. One of the things that I I think is come up is coming up here is whether or not 
you know, the conflict, the passive range of motion that you see in the computer is reflective of what you see in clinical reality. Because one of the things I would probably challenge you on is you've stated your goals are stability and fixation and impingement-free arc. And these are all, of course, you know, like mechanical things. I mean, I, I guess I would challenge you, why isn't your goal a patient with a pain, a pain-free outcome that can, you know, like has good range of motion on the patient side, you know, that doesn't have any complications? Like why... Tell me, help me understand, because I've heard this before. Tell me, understand why you've defined it in these terms and not in patient terms. Why? Because these are the ones you have control over, right? I don't know if the patient's going to follow my my rehab programs, if they're going to get stiff, if they have a tendency to have arthrofibrosis. Or, I mean, there's a thousand other, you know, things that you don't have control over. Um, ultimately, of course, the goal is all patient-centric and it's, pain, you know, give you as much range of motion as possible without pain. I mean, that, that's our goal. And, uh, but how are you going to get there? So, you know, you know Mark Frankel published a, st a study a few years back, said the best predictor of post-op range of motion in a reverse shoulder arthroplasty is what you achieve during surgery. So if you can't get great range of motion intra-op, they're not going to do as well afterwards. So then my goal is, okay, how can I achieve the best motion possible during the operation? Well, I think if I plan ahead, I can improve the chances of doing that. And I, I've definitely had scenarios where I, I, I put the implant in the wrong place. I mean, we often go straight to the glenosphere, right? We, we pick the angle we want for the base plate, put it in, put the glenosphere on, buy it, you know, put it on, and then go and try to tension off the humerus. And there are mistakes you can make by positioning the glenosphere wrong that will dramatically impact your impingement arcs. So if I know that ahead of time, I'm going to make those changes up front. And so that's, I mean, I, I, I think that that's, that's the future here. I know it's for some people, it's a pain in the butt to upload the CT scan and then spend the time to do the analysis. And, but I, I think it's worth every minute of time. So Peter, I think you're, you're saying that we want to have a happy, satisfied patient. And I would argue at time zero, you're almost always going to get that with a reverse. I mean, the reverse works well, it relieves pain, it restores function. But when you think about it down the road, I mean, what are the things that can impact that patient and what would cause them to develop pain later? Well, one is scapular notching, two is an acromion fracture, three is um, a bony impingement that blocks motion. So I think those are things that, you know, if we can optimize them, through lateralization um, and through you know creating that impingement-free arc of motion that John has talked about a lot, um, you may have more long-term success and you may have a more satisfied patient for the long-term as opposed to just at time zero. Let me ask you guys this. I mean, I think one of the things that's been interesting about this lateralization concept generally is that there are a couple of different ways to achieve it. So certainly there are people who are lateralizing through bone grafts, there are people who are lateralizing through augmented base plates. There are people who are lateralizing through lateralized glenospheres. Tell me about, Matt, your current strategy. Do you, which of these three strategies do you choose and why? Sure. So I like to um, lateralize through um, metal and through the glenoid, Peter, because I think it's a simple, reproducible way to do it. Um, that can be through the base plate or through the glenosphere or some combination. Uh, certainly, uh, Pascal Boileau and others have popularized the bio-RSA over time, and that maintains the center of rotation within bone. It, it uh, decreases the shear forces. I mean, there's some advantages to that, but I would argue for, you know, the casual shoulder surgeon, a bio-RSA is a much more complicated uh, procedure. It requires the bone graft to heal, and so for me, I would much rather uh, lateralize on the glenite side, and I do that through a combination of uh, lateralization on the base plate and through the glenosphere.
And John, you're preliminarily lateralizing through the glenosphere itself. Tell us why you think that's better than lateralizing through a bone graft or the base plate. I mean, and, and full disclosure, I use quite a bit of, of bone grafting, and those are in cases where there's bone loss, uh, obviously. But in a when I when I'm trying to just achieve lateralization, I don't want to have to worry about two interfaces of bone healing. I mean, it's it's you know, if I'm using a lateralized center of rotation, usually I have really good fixation on the glenoid. And why would I want to have to then risk my fixation by having a bone graft in between my two points? So I think it's just, it's, it's simple. I mean, the, why add complexity to something that just works? Um, and it, I think taking out, taking the extra time to, to add a bio RSA and, and trying to make sure the graft is getting compressed appropriately and you got a good graft and it really bums you out when you see those things resorb post-operatively and you start to worry and you hope the post has gotten some ingrowth deep. So I think there's, you know, you just don't worry about that when you're using metal and it's got a great track record. So I don't mess with it. Yeah, man, I think those are great points. And um, I, I personally agree with you guys. I think it's, it's just an, it's an interesting thing to see in our field because I think there are, to see the same goal, we've definitely seen different strategies. Any additional pearls you have for our listeners on this topic, Matt? Anything else you think our listeners should know when they think about lateralization in the reverse? Yeah, one thing that we didn't talk about, Peter, is, is the shoulder contour. If you do a Grammont prosthesis on one side and you do a lateralized glenosphere or any sort of lateralized prosthesis on the other um, side for the same patient, you'll notice immediately that their shoulder contour is much different. And patients actually take note of that. Um, they like it to look more normal. Um, and I would argue that if, if you can push them out laterally and create that east-west tensioning, that can ultimately... Um, lead to better function as well. So uh, I think that's one of the understated points of lateralization. And it's something um, that I think uh, could potentially be an, another reason to employ lateralization. Yeah. And I'd say along those lines, you know, when you, when you use a lateralized center of rotation, it gives you a chance to actually put the glenosphere in the middle of the glenoid. You can't do that with, with a, a, a medialized center of rotation because you'll get dramatic notching, but you can do that with a lateralized center of rotation. So if you do that, then you're getting that, you're almost creating an anatomic relationship with all your muscle bellies. You're bringing them right back to the same level where they function. And uh, I think you get, you know, not only does it look better because the contour looks normal, um, but you actually probably function better. Uh, but one other comment that I just want to add is, you know, lateralization is not for every case. And I think if you have severe glenoid bone loss and you're worried about your glenoid fixation, I don't think lateralization, a lateralized center of rotation glenosphere is the right answer. And so those are cases where I am using larger glenospheres where I'm getting, um, it, they tend to have less lateralization, but I can have larger glenospheres allow me to get secondary fixation by load sharing with the rim of the glenosphere, the part that extends beyond the base plate and the native bone or the bone graft. So I can get primary fixation by my base plate and the screws and then secondary fixation from the rim of the glenosphere, which is a little bit more medialized to take the stress off. So lateralization is not for every case. It's really when you've got good glenoid fixation and you're trying to maximize your impingement for your commotion. Yeah, so how do we understand that? that? If I may just, um, I think the particular case that John's talking about would be like a rheumatoid patient where you get that medialization and they're really tight and they're often small individuals as well. That would be an area where you would not want to consider a lateralized glenosphere. So that's, you're John talking there about, you're not talking about minimizing shear stress across the base plate. You're, talk, you're talking more about concerns about Putting, putting too much stress on the posterior cuff. It's not, uh, no, I'm talking about too much stress on your fixation. So if I have very poor fixation on my glenoid, 
and I'm worried. I want to choose a glenosphere that has less lateralization. And, and, and I also would want to use a glenosphere that's larger to take some of the stress off the of glenoid fixation because you can get contact with the rim of the glenosphere on the host bone or the bone graft that you put in. Um, and, and it can take some of the load off of the primary fixation, which are your screws. That's interesting, John. How do you put in a, a larger glenosphere? Because in those cases where you have medialization, I just find those shoulders to be exceptionally tight. So do you ever then have the conflict of a small, tight shoulder and you're trying to put in a larger glenosphere for the reasons that you stated or not so much? But in the system that I'm using, the, the digital system, as you get larger, it gets more medialized. It's just the way that the system works. So if I go in a, if I use a 36 minus four, which I will it, uh, often in these severe glenoid bone loss cases, um, it's a two millimeters of lateral center rotation offset. So it's not, you know, it's almost Gramont-like, uh, only a two millimeters. And it's got a lip on the glenosphere, which allows me to dial that lip into the bone area, the bone deficiency area. And as I compress and impact the taper of the, uh, of the glenosphere onto the base plate, I can get compression of the graft and then it can load share. So it's not a, it, it, it's less, like it's harder to put a lateralized center rotation in a tight patient because you gotta bring that shoulder over. I don't wanna do that. All the soft right. tissues are keeping it in. So I, I haven't had a, a reduction issue. It's actually easier because it's medialized. One of these days, John, you're gonna have to explain to me how, how minus four equals plus two. Oh um, gosh. One of, the, one, of, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things I could not agree with more is definitely in the rheumatoid patient, you should be careful about over-tensioning. We've, we've recently published that those rheumatoid patients have a substantially increased risk for a chromal stress fracture. And I think that's partially for something we alluded to, but maybe didn't directly address, which is that a chromal stress fracture is definitely related to bone quality as much as related to implant characteristics. Definitely. You know, we, we just um, completed a study with Gus, uh, Gus Mazzocco where he took like 50 of my CT scans of patients who had chromium fractures. And uh, they did an analysis to ones that didn't. And uh, the, the, the I-beam of the scapula is different. So if people, people are prone to stress fracture, so those that had stress fractures had a much thinner I-beam, like the, the thickness of their, their spine as you get more media was much less. And the, the chromiums tend to be longer. So there's definitely a bone quality and morphology issue that puts these patients at risk. And I think we're starting to learn this a, a little bit more and more. I mean, the multi-center ASAS study found that patients with cuffed arthropathy had a much higher rate than those if they had osteoarthritis. Um, we're, we're just learning about who are the patients at risk. And then the next step will be, how do we really prevent this? And what are the things that we really should do to, to avoid this? And hopefully we'll, 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 we'll fix the acromion fracture. Obviously we spent a lot of time talking about that today. So it's, it's on all of our minds and I know it's always on mine, but I think we're getting better. So I think a lot of the old data is getting improved with all the new series. Certainly understanding that problem is advancing rapidly right now. And I'm hopeful that will lead us to algorithms that will help us to prevent the problem to begin with. Because as Bob mentioned, it can be devastating for that patient. And um, I'm, I'm still trying to get beyond the fact that you said you have 50 of them. That's so many, but it's certainly that finding <laughs> is going to be helpful to us. Um, well, guys, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. And um, I think our listeners will find this stimulating as they think about reverse shoulder arthroplasty. So for all of our shoulder and listeners out there, don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Peter. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, John. Take care, Matt.